1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the rut. It's November, and specifically, we're going to be talking to Dr. Grant Woods from Growing Deer TV. Now, this man is very well known all across the world from deer hunting and wildlife management. That's what he does, and that's what he's passionate about, and he has proved himself over the years. And so, of course, we got to get him on here to talk about deer, the rut, what exactly the rut is and how it affects these deer. So, y'all, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast. We really appreciate all the support that we've gotten y'all since the start of this thing earlier this year. You know, the, the support and all the listens and downloads we've gotten from y'all, it has been overwhelming and awesome to see. So, y'all, we just want to thank you. You've got lots of different choices out there, so thank you for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast. And if you haven't yet, make sure you download the Hunt Stand app and upgrade to Pro Whitetail. You've got plenty of time left still to try and kill a deer if you haven't done it yet. Let Pro Whitetail help better your chances to be successful in the woods and maximize your time in the woods. And I mean, I've been using it religiously this year. I mean, it helps me pick out the right days that I want to be in the stand with the Whitetail Activity Forecast. The rut is helping me kind of look at the different phases of the rut in my area down to the county. And so make sure you get that downloaded. Upgrade to it today if you already do have Hunt Stand. And y'all, we just want to thank you again for tuning in the Hunt Stand Podcast. And here's Dr. Grant Woods. All right, Grant. Well, first and foremost, we just want to thank you for your time and welcome you to the Hunt Stand Podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely, man. Love to get you on here and pick your brain a little bit. Talk deer hunting, of course. And so uh, one of the things I like to do to get these podcasts started is I like for the guests to give the listeners kind of that 30-foot tree stand view of who you are. You know, kind of tell us, you know, where you are, where you're from, and how you've gotten to where you are in life now. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'm near Branson, Missouri. A lot of people know Branson. I'm a little town called Reed Springs, about 10 miles out. Mm -hmm. You can actually see the lights of Branson from some of the ridgetops here. Wow. And, um, own a little bit of property and love deer hunting. I was uh, raised on a small farm about an hour from here. Mm -hmm. Grew a lot of rocks and tried to grow some pigs and hogs along with that. When I was six years old, I had a little trap line. You know, I'd take those scrap barn wood, make rabbit traps. And mm -hmm. I remember it so clearly. Uh, right before Christmas break, I was in first grade, uh, getting ready to did my chores. Had to do my chores first, go check my traps. And I'd heard barbershop somewhere i wish i could recall they're gonna restock some deer in that county there were no deer i'd never seen a deer yeah and for some reason i just wanted to 
And uh, that morning running my trap line, I found a female fawn in one of our little fields dead that a poacher had shot that night. And ever since that moment, I've been fascinated with deer and really dislike people that abuse game laws, uh, you know, or game. And so just kept that passion, figured a way to go to college and just kept going till mm-hmm. I, you know, till he wouldn't have me anymore, you know, and yeah. just wanted to work with deer, just wanted to study deer. Now, how did you get Growing Deer TV started? What Kind of give us the backstory behind all that. Yeah. So while I was in college, I was that good kid. I'm old enough that you had to pay a nickel for copies back in the day <laughs> and get a pencil out of box. You know, you're supposed to leave a nickel. And, and I did. And so the secretaries liked me. This was at Clemson. I went to Missouri State, Georgia, and Clemson. Okay. And, uh, and uh, I was in my PhD program at this time. And so again, secretaries like me and timber companies would call up and, you know, have a few leases or something big enough for a big school project. They'd say, Hey, we got this graduate student that works with deer. Why don't you see if here take you on and just start doing some jobs, helping people like that. <coughs> and by the time I graduated, I, I was consulting. I said, why do I want to, you know, teach the classroom full of kids. Some of them may not want to be here when I can be out, you know, outside yeah. working with deer, applying what I learned and, that was 31 years ago. And so I was traveling all over, just literally from New Zealand to Canada. Wow. Uh, yeah. No, don't go to New Zealand much. I don't want to mislead people, but certainly throughout the states, all the states have whitetails in them. Okay. A lot. Uh, and we'd had our first child. I'm married and had our first child and set, come home, missed a flight, got in next morning type deal, all strung out from the road. So <laughs> Bob Seeger, quoting Bob Seeger. <laughs> and, uh, Sitting there with my legs spread, rolling the ball back and forth, my little daughter, my little child, you know, just father-daughter stuff. Yeah. And the phone rang. As soon as it rang, she said, Daddy, because I was traveling so much, that's how she knew me. Wow. Crushed me. And that was the impetus for starting Growing Deer, literally. You know, you know everyone thinks some fancy brainstorm. It wasn't. It was just spend more time with family. And I just thought, hey, I wonder if I just give this information away for free if some partners would come alongside us. and you know, want to help us deliver this message. That, there was no written plan. There was no business plan. This this should not succeed according <laughs> to, you know, the people. There was right. there has been never been a plan. It's just why do we do this week? Man, that's a pretty cool story. I like that. And it kind of hits home with me too, because I've got a daughter myself that she's just now starting to talk and really form sentences. And so yeah. I definitely understand that right there and get where that came from. So that's a cool story. Well what I want to talk about, you know, we're, we're in November. It's been deer season for a little bit, but, you know, this is sure. the time of year that it has the highest level of anticipation. Everybody's just waiting for the rut to get here, the pre-rut. You know, things are about to be just full wide open here before long. But, you know, I think there's a lot of people that when they think about the rut, they hear things, they see things, there's myths, there's all this, there's all that. But I want to know from you, how do you define the rut? So in your, in your words, what is the rut and what triggers the rut? That is a great question. So with your permission, I'm going to pair pre-rut and rut together because I kind of need that to define what the rut is. Go for it. This is a open forum here. I'm going to call it a pre-rut starting when the very first couple of does become receptive in that area. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of perfume in the air. And I'm going to call that pre-rut. Bucks are kind of on a food cover, food cover pattern, starting to spend a few, little bit more time on their feet. Right. And a scientist measured that with GPS collars, literally how many steps they take a day. And that doesn't mean far. They're not necessarily going out of home range. They may spend 
way more time on her feet in 200 acres or 500 acres or whatever. I don't mm. want to put a number on there because, oh, my gosh, that's the fact. And deer are different everywhere you go, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then the rut is, I'm, gonna, I'm just putting a number. Someone may say 25 or 35, but I'm going to say when 30% of the does have been bred. And the rest of them are just really starting, instead of, I'm just being facetious here, but one a day, now there's two or three a day, four mm-hmm. or five become receptive in a day. That's the rut. There's no time to stop. Mm-hmm. There's a prom over here. There's a prom over here. I got to get going. <laughs> and all the bucks, all the bucks, because the pre-rut kind of starts. You see this on your trail cameras or as a skilled hunter. You start seeing those young bucks, man, they're, you know, they're on their feet a little bit more. And yep. You hit a grunt call, they come a running or whatever, you know. Big bucks, not so much. And then you start getting some does receptive, and the big bucks start showing up on your camera a bit more in daylight hours, typically. A lot of variables, hunting pressure, weather, stuff like that. Yeah. And then you get the rut. And another indicator of rut is the scrapes will leaf over or grass over, depending on where you are. And, and I look at a scrape as an old telephone booth. If you remember telephone booths, mm-hmm. that was a point of communication. You went there to communicate, hey, I'm here. I'll see you later, you know, whatever. Get some milk, honey, whatever it is. So a scrape is just a central communication. They don't have a mobile phone they can take with them, so they have to go somewhere to communicate okay. with the rest of the herd. And so a scrape, of course, they're depositing scent on the ground, but primarily that overhanging limb. And I actually did my master's thesis on scrape behavior. And and just this is not scientific. I did a bunch of scientific work. But this was just me being the hunter because – I'm a hunter first, right? Oh, yeah. And I was it was on public land, and there was a logging road going down this nice creek bottom, and just, just the way it worked out, there were 10 scrapes, you know, scrape, 50-yard scrape, 70-yard scrape, all on the same side of the road. Just, there was just bucks going down through there. God. Now, I was hunting with the, you know, we do video camera like this now because smaller. Back in the day, they were like carrying your suitcase out there. You Hold know? it up but, on yeah. your shoulder, yeah. That's right. And the battery lasts about three minutes or something. So I put rubber boots on, rubber gloves, probably made no difference because we're respirating all the time. Mm -hmm. And I went to the first one and I put my hand on there just like I was going to remove it, my clippers, but didn't. So I left the same scent, whatever. Went to the second one, removed that overhanging lip. So remove, leave, remove, leave, remove, leave, five and five. At trail cameras, the first ones, literally the first ones, they were so crude. And, And those five that I removed overhanging limb died in two days. Really? The other five kept going. Huh. So the same amount of time standing there, and I put the overhanging limb in a you know plastic trash bag and carried it away. I didn't just throw it on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that that scent's gone. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, you know, your brother-in-law or someone you don't really like is on a hot scrape, just go cut that overhanging limb off. Here, take <laughs> care of that. That baby's dead. Done. Done. So, so anyway, I, I got off track. I'll summarize the pre-ruts, you know, when the first – few does start becoming receptive up to, I'm going to put a number of 30%. There's no magic number there, 20, okay. 30. Okay. And, and then once we get to where multiple does are becoming receptive each day, the bucks don't need to go to scrapes or leafing over and they're nose in the wind trying to find the next receptive doe. Gotcha. So I, I want to kind of come back to something you said earlier about, you know, scrapes being that telephone booth in a way of these deer communicating. So I, I've, I've heard stuff similar to that, that guys will say, you know, these are, um, you know, that your community scrapes, these deer are communicating, but what exactly is that buck saying or those bucks saying 
in these scrapes? You know, are they saying, hey, this is my territory, or is it just kind of like they're checking in on each other, like I'm still here? What are they communicating to each other through these scrapes? Yeah, my really good friend, Dr. Carl Miller, Carl and I were at University of Georgia together. He was finishing right when I was starting. Mm-hmm. Brilliant guy, just brilliant. Um, he, I looked at more in-the-field scrape stuff, and he was into chemistry, you know, swabbing her nose and her interdigital glands and okay. analyzing urine every way you could. Mm-hmm. So Carl taught me a lot. He could speak to this, but I've heard Carl say this, until we can talk to the deer. You know, hey, 10-pointer, what are you saying? We don't know. The best we can do is collect these chemicals, which Carl and other people have, and analyze them the best we can. But there's still some assumptions in there. Right. Certainly seems like bucks are communicating status. Okay. And and that status isn't necessarily, hey, I'm like a football linebacker. You know, I'm 255. I got 143 inches showing baby. I'm <laughs> I'm pretty good shape. You know, yeah. it, it, it's the hierarchical status. Okay. I'm a junior. I'm pretty good. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, you know, the most dominant buck in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's what they're communicating. Cause we tend to think of status as a measurement, you know, 120 inch, 130 inch, whatever. Yeah. And those are probably communicating. I'm receptive. Ah, okay. So when a buck or, is, when a, when a buck, ahead. when a buck is scraping and he's trying to essentially show what his status is, you know, uh, this just might be ignorance on my part, but are they, you know, essentially the more dominant or alpha maleish, if you will, for the buck? Are they just completely tearing these scrapes up even more? Or, I mean, do we even know if they can? Can we pick that Such apart? Such a at good all? question. Yes, yes, I can. From my master's thesis, as puny as it was back in the day, but so button bucks will spend more time, more seconds on average, in a scrape than a mature buck. Really? Oh yeah. You just think think of button bucks as like a freshman in high school. Okay. Dumb as a rock. Sorry, <laughs> all you young guys out there. Yeah. Girls, not so much, but you guys, dumb as a rock. Mm-hmm. But curious and wanting to go to prom real bad. And think of two-year-old bucks as like a freshman in college. Almost smart enough to stay out of trouble. Yeah. You know. They, they probably know not to go to the football linebacker and say, hey, buddy, I'm, you know, I'm going to whip you. That, that, if you've made it to college, you're probably smart enough to know not to do that. Yeah. Uh, and let's think about three-year-old bucks. Is that 30-year-old business, very successful guy driving that hot rod vehicle, whatever they are these days, I'm old. You know, I, I got the roll by the tail. Yeah. Four-year-olds, that probably 40, 50-year-old, he knows he's got it by the tail. He's not just thinking, right? He's been there he and knows. done a bunch of yeah. that. Yeah. And the six-year-olds, they don't care what anyone else is doing. <laughs> they, they've already got it made. They're in great health. They they are the kid on the block, if they've lived their life properly. So, mm-hmm. you know, for humans, maybe you made some bad mistakes. For a butt, maybe you got injured. You got in a fight. You got gored, but the infection didn't kill you or, you know, whatever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the behavior is very similar between in general, we're talking generalities, those human age classes and deer age classes. Okay. And you can tell it cause you know, when you're sitting in a tree stand or you're blind or whatever, and you sure enough hear that old mature buck coming, you can almost hear the swagger. Oh yeah. Step, step. It's not that titter tatter step of a yearling buck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, like the eighth grade boy just running everywhere getting, you know, Kind of a lot of nonsense going on. He comes walking in. And you folks, can tell. Yeah. 
and I'm not trying to fit. I, I was in eighth grade too. I was a freshman too, guys. So I'm not, yeah. been, I've lived through these stages myself. <laughs> That's how I can define them. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's always funny, you know, so, I, no, the, the, I'm sorry. I was going to finish up that. So that dominant buck is probably just going to that overhanging limb and maybe rub urinating or just urinating. Mm-hmm. He's just leaving scent. He's not there to mess around. Those younger bucks are very curious. They're spending a lot of time sniffing and on the ground and doing all those things. Dominant bucks just leaving that calling card most times. You know, it's it's pretty funny how how much uh, you can relate animal behavior to human behavior. Uh, you know, I've I've done some podcasts talking about elk and elk hunting before, and it's funny how you know we we do that with that, and you know doing the same thing with whitetail. And so, you know, kind of coming back to the rut, um, you know, now that we've got pro whitetail with hunt stand out there, you know, we've got mm-hmm. rut dates broken down, you know, really specific from the pre to peak, uh, to waning pre-secondary and secondary ruts. And so we've really got that broken down by the County level. But I think one of the, the common misconceptions is that, I think a lot of people across the nation think, all right, November one, the rut has started everywhere. Yeah, the rut has started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. so what? What do you kind of have to say to that guy or gal that thinks like that, trying to convince them otherwise? You know, uh, so I got buddies that never left the county where I went to high school. Right, they got right. a local job. I mean, they're happy. They're doing great. You know, whatever. And I got buddies like me that run a jet 30, 40 weeks out a year mm-hmm. or on a lone pickup ride. And so there's hunters that are going to hunt that same county year after year. And it is November X for them. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of their hunting world, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Spend a lot of time with family, you know, got maybe the old hunting camp or whatever. It's awesome. There's some of us that like to travel, man. I, I you know, the bulk of the nation is that November time frame. Yeah. Get down to South Florida, their rut is in late July, way South Florida, late July, early August. I've been there, folks. You don't want to go. The mosquitoes are horrible. <laughs> Imagine trying to set still in a tree stand in South Florida, you know, Man. in late July, early August. St. Season opens August 1st. South Carolina Coastal Plain, August opens, August fit season opens August 15th with the rifle. August <sighs> 15th. I've seen a lot of days it was 100 degrees. Mm. Miserable. But their rut will be in October. So Brian, Brian there with Huntstand, Brian Murphy, close friend of mine, great guy, very smart, very, very smart. Another UGA guy, University of Georgia. Um, developed that map for y'all, and he worked with all the different state agencies to get that detailed data. Man, what a great piece of work that is. Because, again, if you're like me and you like to hop in a pickup and go hunt with your buddies in Texas or Alabama or wherever, you kind of look at that and say, oh, hey, y'all got some room for me next year, December 1st, or, you know, whatever it is. You yeah. know, you can look at that and figure it out. So. I love it. It was great work. Great tool. Big time. So what I want to talk to you about next is what the rut does to a deer's body. And specifically, you know, let's talk about a buck. You know, their bodies go through some crazy changes, you know, during the summer months, preseason, kind of those early season days. They're skinny, but then leading up to it, you know, they start putting on the weight and everything. But what kind of what kind of damage does a rut really do on a, a buck's body? Man, yeah, wicked, wicked. So you just kind of think about uh, you're in a football game or you're playing rugby. You're just running all the time and bumping into people that want to bump you back. Rugby's yeah. probably a better, 
because you're just going. There's no, there's not a, a play in a timeout and a play in a timeout. You're rugby. You're just going. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it is for a buck. And if you're a small buck, you want to run, but you don't win any of those bump into's, right? You get thrashed. You get your head bit down oh, or whatever, yeah. you know? Uh, so it's brutal. Uh, they're at University of Georgia where I was a student in Mississippi State. A lot of schools have researchers have reported the same thing, even in a, and I remember the data from where I was at Georgia. I think there were half acre pins. Mm-hmm. We're doing some testing, three bucks, three does. At that time, it was a dominance test. They've done oodles of research there, but you know, I, I can't remember all the details, but it was a big, medium and smaller buck or different age classes. There were several tests going on and three does. And all the food they could eat, food ad lib, you know, they eat some more pours out trough, all the clean water in a half acre. You can't run too much, I would think, in a half acre. No. Right? Only six deer and dominance is established pretty quickly, right? I mean, oh, yeah. it's not like. And they would lose 20 to 30% of their body weight in that half acre with all the food they could eat. They never had to go, where's that next acorn? You know, or am I getting shot at today? God. So. Put that in scale, 200 pound buck, live weight. We're talking live weight, whole yep. weight. Lose 30%, that takes it down to 140 pounds. Mm. Man, that, that's a lot. That's, you know, you know that when you bring it up like that, it's like, you know, I've seen deer lose weight, but when you think about that, like, good night. That's, I'll tell you, funny, we had this big old buck here where I live years ago called Butterbean. Butterbean. Called Butterbean. He was just fat. Yeah. He, he was a, you know, 140. He was a good rack. I mean, 140 is a good deer for me, but oh yeah, he was just a pig. I mean, <laughs> next to other bucks had bigger racks. He was just a pig. We don't supplementally feed here. He just, somehow genetically, he could convert the rocks here in the Ozark Mountains to a lot of body fat. Because, I mean, he was just big. And I actually harvested Butterbean. Downhill. The shot was, it was rifle season. Mm-hmm. Down, it's pretty steep at my place. Down a power line right away. Of course, I'm a static. It's kind of a target buck. You know, I'm all static about this. And I get down there and then rowdy hits. I got to drag him up the hill. <laughs> and I had help. I had a cameraman. But I'm still, th- you know how it is dragging a deer, man. Oh, it's yeah. that dead weight. And going uphill in rocks, you know, it's just miserable. About 400-yard drag, something like that, you know. So I grabbed an antler and was going to get it kind of up this little level spot to get really braced up and, you know, go 10 steps, rest, go 10 steps and rest. Yep. And I almost fell down because <laughs> Butterbean had lost so much weight during the rut. Yeah. And when I put him on, the, and, and I don't know his live weight, obviously, mm-hmm. pre-rut. but when And I killed him late rut, last day of rifle season, I think, or last weekend or something like that here in Missouri. And when I put him on scale, he weighed 140 pounds. I always remember that. And I would have easily guessed him at 200 plus live weight. Man. Yeah, that... <laughs> that rut really does something to them. And so, you know, we're talking about what it does to the bucks, you know, what, what about the does, you know, obviously it's breeding season, but what amount of stress or what kind of stress do they take on their bodies as they're just getting chased down, you know, day after day after day by these crazy bucks. Great question. Let's finish up with one thing. So, you know, bucks are going every day from pre-rut, whenever that is in your neighborhood, till the end of the rut. Mm-hmm. March, there's always going to be some female fawns that become receptive, whatever. And it's really where, and, and might get gored, might get an infection, 
might break an ankle running all the time, you know, pushing, fighting. It, it is brutal. And so that's why you want to try to balance your adult sex ratio, one buck to one doe. Mm-hmm. It's three or four to one. Those bucks are burning so many calories. They can't really recover before that late winter. And so instead of, you know, growing, leveling through the winter, growing, they grow and then go down. And so antlers aren't going to be as big because they have to come back up to normal before they can do excess. Antlers yeah. are excess. Yeah. So that's just one reason to throw in a little deer management there and, Work on your doe harvest if you want some bigger bucks. Uh, does got a little easier. They're going to be receptive for 24 to 36 hours. And during that 24 to 36 hours, it's brutal. Bucks are gorm if they don't stand still. Literally, you're finding a lot of does that have gore marks in their fanny back there. The bucks are chasing them. But it's 24 to 36 hours. And my good friend, Dr. Mickey Hellickson out of Texas, another UGA guy, mm-hmm. um, Mick's a great guy, very smart biologist. Uh, Mickey did some research and they had real intensive GPS, radio collar blood sample, and to just trust me, real intense research. Okay. And he found that about 25% minimum of twin fawns were stepbrother, stepsister. That doe had bred with multiple bucks during that receptive period. And that just adds to the trauma. Now that we know that's true. I think last I knew, maybe much more now, there were six humans in the United States that were recorded. So first, the female has to breed with multiple partners during that receptive period. With humans, it's pretty short also, 24, 36 hours or whatever. Yeah. And then there has to be a paternity test. It may be more frequent than that, but how many twins have a genetic test? And and a deer. No one was thinking that because we, even biologists, we kind of think like humans, right? Yeah. That's just not natural protocol. So for most of us, so, <laughs> uh, but with deer, it's doggone natural. If you think about it, that's just, you know, survival to fittest, mm-hmm. uh, genetic variation and deer, that chromosome map has been mapped. And they're extremely diverse. Everyone else says, well, I think we got some bad genes or our, our genes have just been here too long. That, that just ain't happening. That just ain't happening. That gene pool is so diverse. It's almost always a nutrition issue or a habitat issue. It's not a genetic issue. Yeah. All right, y'all, we're going to interrupt this podcast real quick for a quick word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Lacrosse Footwear, innovating boots that endure with you through every adventure, now and forever forward. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and Winchester. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. All right, y'all. We're going to get back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Yeah. You know, talking about does and being receptive, I mean, when they come into heat or, you know, that doe's hot or, you know, whatever the term needs to be coined by all the hunters out there, how long are they staying in heat? Is it that 24 to 36 hours? And can they come into heat more than one time throughout the rut? Yeah, absolutely. Some more work out of UGA. You can tell I'm proud of UGA. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they can. Um, So if, again, if there's too many does, you know, hey, we're not harvesting any does, don't believe in that, we're going to shoot every buck that moves, Mm -hmm. a lot of does won't be bred in that first receptive cycle. The buck's just busy over here. And so that puts that fawn about another 28 days later. We don't, we think about the stress of the rut, which is certainly true. 
But the other half of that picture is now that fawn is born out of sync with when it should. Fawns are programmed in any geographic area to be born when, you know, insects are lower, nutrition is highest. And mother's milk, does milk, seems to be pretty similar, dough to dough to dough. It's the quantity. You know, if you had, you're a 200-pound guy and you had one really good quality cup of milk in the morning, that's okay. It's just not nutrition, right? You want right. a half gallon or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so the same way with fawns. So the does are going to make good milk. They're going to use whatever habitat's there. Okay. But they may not be able to produce enough, especially if they have twins, maybe even triplets. Uh, so you want to remove enough does, ideally, so there's plenty of groceries for all the deer herd out there. Mm-hmm. That's goal number one. And goal number two is balance that sex ratio so more does get bred that first time because it takes energy to cycle again. Yeah. And then the fawn is born late and it's done it. It just starts out the world late, literally. So, yeah, that happens. And they can cycle three, four more times. Okay. Okay. Which has a big cost, right? That has a big cost for bucks and does. Man. Now, when it comes to, I know I'm, uh, this question got sparked because you're ta- you talked about it, but, you know, we're talking about that buck to doe ratio, that doe management. Yeah. What, in your professional opinion, is a good buck to doe ratio? I know I've heard a couple of different things from different people. Yeah. But what what's what does Grant say about that? I, I like it skewed towards bucks, right? I, I mean, I, let me just be. I, I, I eat venison. I love venison, but I sure love seeing big set antlers coming through timber too. So, yeah. If you work it really hard, like I've had projects where we've shot five does for every buck, literally mm-hmm. for years, for years, never ran out of deer. Okay. And you toot on that grunt call or you smash those antlers together. You, you know, you're not a hunt. The wind's right. You know, you kind of approach right, all that stuff. Really high chance of seeing a deer. Really high chance. Because there's some competition for breeding rights. Yeah. And that doe, when she comes perceptive, she's bred. Boom. That stress yeah. is over. Yeah. That buck can go to the next doe. Yeah. So it kind of, so, it, it, but. Everyone talks about these, boy, my deer herd's 10 to 1 or 12 to 1. That's not true either. Mm -hmm. We're talking sex ratio. That might be true adult sex ratio after the deer season. Because deer season's the biggest cause of death of deer by far, not vehicles, deer season. So, But before that, let's think about this. Fawns are born almost always 50-50, male, female. Okay. I've worked with herds again north to south, east to west, and done a lot of work and had – I don't mean it's wrong, but thousands of fetuses in my hand mm-hmm. from late season doe harvest. Right. Doing research. It's 50 50. 48 to 52, I considered pretty out of balance. Just a couple percent. Okay. So, and in any normal deer herd, if you think about it, there are more fawns than anything else because of mortality, right? Mm-hmm. By the time you get an half old, X percent has died. Two and a half old, more have died. You can't get more two and a half year olds, right? Because you got to have more yearlings. So the pyramids like this, there's very few eight, nine, 10 year olds. There's a whole bunch of half year olds. Yeah. And they're 50 50. So no matter how much of these you harvest, like Pennsylvania used to harvest every buck that moved, right? Mm-hmm. I think their harvest was literally 90% yearling bucks, literally. Yeah. So it, I'm not very good graphically, but if you can imagine this, if this is bucks over here, there weren't hardly any bucks make it to old age. I don't know if this, but a lot of does make it at those age. So the pyramid was skewed, if you will. Yeah. But there's so many fawns, the furthest you can get it out is about 3.3 to 1. 
because the fawn age class is so big, it swamps the other age classes at 50-50. Yeah. Okay. So mathematically, before season, 3.3 to 1 is about as far as you can get it. Good ratio. Yeah. But you want 1 to 1. Yeah. Let's, I mean, n- nature is, they're born 1 to 1. That seems to be the plan, right? They're born 1 to 1. We should manage for 1 to 1. That's a good thought. That's definitely a good thought there for all those out there listening that are trying to, you know, manage their herds for those bigger bucks. So, you know, you spoke on this a second ago. You spoke on uh, deer mortalities. You know, obviously hunting is the number one reason that, you know, they cause death. But how significant of a rise in deer mortalities or buck mortalities, uh, to be more specific, do we see during the rut than any other time of the year? Because- oh, it's huge. Yeah. And that's I'm just sorry. because no no you're good and that's just because they become carefree and just go nuts, right? Well, accidents again goring a lot of bucks get gored. This is going to look really silly, but like this is an antler and a deer skin is soft, so my cheeks going away but it's not getting punctured. No infection got in there. Right. So, I know Brian and I both have done this. You find a dead buck, you go, "Oh, it got poached." And you got your knife, you know, we're we're both deer nerds, so we got to figure out what killed it, right? Mm-hmm. So you get your knife out, start cutting that thing open, and, and we just both skin it back layer by layer. You don't right. just go right up the middle. And you find a bunch of bruising, usually between like rib four and five, five and six, right in there where an antler might swing around from head-to-head combat. Yep. And that tine will go between two ribs. Now, the skin's real loose. You, you skin deer. You know how loose it is. Oh, yeah. So that skin goes when at the time. But the tine reaches so far, there's blunt force trauma, and that broke the heart. I mean, literally broke the heart. Dang. So even though there's not a hole through the skin, the buck died quickly. Okay. Sheesh. Like you picked up a lab by the scruff, or any hunting dog by scruff of the neck. Yeah. They don't yelp or anything, and it seems to stretch out about two feet, right? There's oh, all yeah. this loose skin. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's how God built bucks. So those antler tines, if it was drum tight, and that tine runner is going to puncture Mm-hmm. And antlers, you think about scraping, rubbing, go through timber, you get all kind of bacteria on there. They're in the dirt. They're all over. They're fighting other bucks. So typically, if they get punctured by an antler, that typically causes a you know a pretty bad infection, which Damn. may lead to death. Man. Now, and does, on the other hand, their biggest source of mortality, of course, is during fawning season. Because of predators? Well, predators probably to a smaller extent, but, you know, we got a high dollar cow out there. We're watching her. If the calf has trouble, we reach in and redirect it. No one's doing that to does. Okay. So they're having they're having issues whenever that doe can have issues. Yeah, they can't can not have them, but yeah, they can have issues. So okay. Now, what about uh, there's definitely an uprise in vehicle accidents around that time involving yeah. deer. Yeah. Because they're just they they don't even care. I mean, I've seen it where. You know, though here in Texas, obviously it's insane. I've seen bucks just straight up go right across I thirty five chasing does, or you know, we've it, it's kind of like that same thing that you've got that buck that comes by. He's he's got his head down, and you could be sitting there screaming at him, having a full on conversation with him, and he ain't gonna stop. Not not nothing's getting his attention. Yeah, for that moment. Yeah, there was some really cool research. I think it's preliminary, but it was in like the Wildlife Society bulletin or an official wildlife publication. I forget which one. Mm-hmm. And some folks worked on an army base. that was big, a lot of blacktop roads and had a bunch of deer, limited hunting, bunch of deer car accidents. Bunch yeah. of them. They're, they're trying to figure out how can we not have these deer car accidents? Cause it's basically getting sued all the stuff. 
and some really smart researchers, I don't remember names or anything, not trying to shun anyone, mm-hmm. uh, figured out that, you know, if you think about it, a deer hasn't learned vehicles yet, obviously. Yeah. So at nighttime, most deer car accidents are at night. They just see two bright spots coming to them. Mm-hmm. So they don't know to get out of the way. They don't know what it is. And these really smart graduate students went out. I don't remember the details. I'll probably get a lot of hate mail on this, but <laughs> about a foot in front of the bumper and put a pretty low level LCD light back showing it's a big, massive thing coming toward them. Uh-huh. It lit up the front of the car, not just two round lights coming. It lit up the front of the car. Really? Not enough that other drivers were hindered because the light's coming back to the car. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, pitched such a way it's not coming into the windshield. It's just lighting up the front of the car. And the number of deer car accidents, and I don't want to quote it, but I believe our members less than 50%. I mean, it, it declined significantly for a $4 part, $10 part. I don't know. You know, a real cheap part. Huh. Because now deer see... Man, there's something six feet, eight feet across coming at me. I need to get out of Dallas. Oh, yeah. Not just two little circles coming at me. Hmm. I'm surprised we haven't seen more car manufacturers. Or did I mean uh, did did that ever get taken to a car manufacturer? I, I'm sure some universities got that locked up and trying mm-hmm. to sell it for 50 billion or something, you know. I mean, I'm thinking about saving lives here, folks. You know, deer are the most dangerous animal by far. Yeah. You can take beehives, rattlesnake bites, you know, grizzly bears, all that, all that combined. It's nothing compared to the number of people killed by deer car accidents. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane. I mean, pretty much down here in Texas, it's if you go down a highway and you don't see a dead deer on the side of the road, then you know, either it recently got cleaned up or something's not right. There's not deer in the yeah. area, right? And, and you're right, it's during the rut, pre-rut rut. And when food is scarce or water scarce and deer are having to move further to find mm-hmm. a limited resource. Okay. Late winter to be a lot because they're scurrying around trying to find some groceries somewhere or in a drought. They're scurrying into different areas trying to find some water. Yeah. Uh, but you, the rut's big. You know, that, that's a good segue for the next question I had for you. Uh, you know, we all know that deer, they kind of, these bucks get in that seeking phase and they get away from home. And we know, you know, I think there's a lot of research out there and a lot of listeners probably know that, you know, these deer will go quite a few miles away from their home base. And, you know, that's kind of how it is at my place here in Texas. My bucks have been showing up all year. They disappear right around this time. And then I have a new group that comes in and they'll disappear. And then the old guys come back. But, uh, you know, what is the furthest you've ever seen a buck travel in the rut or been a part of some type of research that you've seen? This wasn't me. It was a buddy of mine, but it was in West Texas several years ago, mm-hmm. like maybe the nineties in a wicked drought. And he had radio collars, not the modern GPS collars we have now with satellite radio collars. So you had to physically get an antenna within a certain distance to find this deer. Okay. Couldn't find this deer. Couldn't find this deer. It was a big part of his research. So, they actually rented a fixed wing plane and started flying concentric circles around what they thought this deer's home range was. Maybe it's dead. It got right behind a rock with a different angle, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. The last circle was a hundred miles from center of what they believed was the deer's home range when they found it. What? And I think it was going for, you know, West Texas is pretty dry. Anyway. Oh yeah. I think, you know, going for water, but, the Mississippi State's got a deer. I think now, I think that deer is still alive. It's real famous on our social media uh, that swims the Mississippi River one way in the spring and comes back in the falls. Done it for like two or three years. Swims the Mississippi River. 
fitted with the GPS collar. Ah, those deer go quite the lengths. I tell you what. Well, some deer do. Yeah. I mean, that's the only deer they've had to do that. But again, I look at it just like humans. Some people are wanders and some people are homebodies. Mm-hmm. And some bucks live and die in a few hundred acres and some get about town. Yeah. Well, you know, these these deer just, they always, they never cease to amaze me or trick me or every year it's always something new, something different with the deer. But what I want to ask you next, and I'm sure the listeners are probably wanting to know this, but, you know, we talked about it earlier, but we talked about the pre-rut, peak rut, waning, pre-second, and the secondary rut. You know, what in your mind is your favorite of those to be out in the woods trying to chase some of these deer? Man, I love them all. The pre-rut's exciting. Uh, If I'm hunting at home on turf, I know. I actually prefer to pre-rut because deer are still on that food cover, early pre-rut, food cover, food cover pattern, but they're mm-hmm. a bit more active. If I'm travel hunting, you, hey, Grant, come on down to Texas. I want to go there and rut because I don't know where I'm going. I just need deer moving. Yeah. I, my, you know, I just, I just need deer putting a lot of steps on each day. Uh, I have a lot of success at, I think you're calling it secondary, but the late rut. Mm-hmm. Um and typically what happens there, if you're in a habitat where your fawns are getting healthy enough, here in Missouri, you need to be about 65 pounds, give or take, to reach puberty that first year. That's here, late December, January, February, depending on when the fawn's born, how good the food is that year. Yep. And so adult does tend to, not always, but tend to, when they start feeling receptive, apparently they separate from their fawns. You've all seen these apparent orphan fawns during the rut, right? Mm-hmm. Where's the mom? Where's the mom? And they're separate themselves and probably go to a different portion of their home range. So that's why I don't like hunting the big food plot where 20 does are coming every night because those are probably not receptive does during the rut. Those are girls hanging out. Okay. I want to be a receptive doe goes. Typically real brushy, thick, because she don't want to be harassed by five bucks. Yeah. And I've got a lot of video of five, six bucks just circling the dough and a dominant buck dancing around like a little Jack Russell kind of keeping all at bay. <laughs> uh, so I, I like to hunt real thick areas during that rut time. Okay. I like to be elevated where I can see into it. If you like this, you may only see antlers and not get a shot. I like the one hillside to another type deal. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say, well, there ain't no hills around here, Grant. But, you know, whatever you can do. Um, uh, that's my favorite. But the late rut, the fawn, again, is the eighth grade girl. And I do not, I'm very family oriented, folks. Don't send me hate mail, but <laughs> she's going to her first social event. Right. She's kind of awkward. She didn't know what she's doing. So she's been going back and forth with the herd to this food plot every afternoon, right? Mm-hmm. That late season, there's not many groceries. Food plots can be critical. If you've got some you haven't hunted too much, deer don't associate it with danger. And if I've got a food plot, where five or six fawns are coming in in the afternoon, I'm hunting that baby because again, they're not separating like an adult doe. Okay. They're just doing the same thing every day. But that mature buck smells the same perfume. Hmm. And I have killed some really nice bucks. Now, there's some negatives here, right? They're just fewer bucks. You're late in the season. A lot of bucks are at someone's house or the taxidermist. Yeah. Uh, but those that are out there, if you've got a few food plots that haven't just been hammered by hunting, just, you know, I hunted every day. I hunt the same blind no matter what the wind's doing. I, I wore the four-wheeler trail out. There's ruts where my four-wheeler goes. You got a food plot that hasn't been hunted too much, and you got a bunch of fawns coming in, man, that's a ticket to harvesting a mature buck. 
that's a good thing to think about in that late season time. I like that. So, Grant, we're running out of time here. We've got a few minutes left. And the last thing I want to ask you is, you know, we've talked about the rut. We've talked about what it does to a deer and kind of gone down a couple rabbit holes. But when it comes to hunting the rut, do you have any kind of parting advice for that hunter that's trying to put together that game plan together or that's hunting the rut, trying to figure it out themselves? So Brian's map or a lot of data here in Missouri where I am, the, the, when, when we get to that plateau, so the rut is a bell-shaped curve. We kind of go on that plateau where it's just a bunch of those receptive. It's somewhere around November 8th. It's not moon-driven at all. Mm-hmm. That's a total myth. It's Anyway, that can be tough because the buck's going to tend to doe for 24, 36 hours. And if you're right where he's tending, you're thinking, man, this is the best rush action I've seen. It's on this year. It's awesome. And if you're not, what well, a rut didn't happen this year. You hear that comment all the time. Well, oh, yeah. Folks, when, when you see fawns each spring, the rut happened last fall. Yeah. Right? That's just, you know, you can put those two together. Mm-hmm. So during that time, I know I can't pattern deer. Again, I love utility easements or something going through a bedroom where I can just see a long ways. Mm-hmm. And if I'm bow hunting, and, I, and, and bucks will typically run that downwind side of the bedding area. They're just using their nose to scent check for does. I'm going to put my stand and maybe I'm hunting over here and I can see five, 600 yards and the bucks keep cruising up there out of range. Well, I'm going to circle down the of that if I can and try to hone in where I'm in range with my boat. Okay. But if I'm using, you know, a Winchester or a firearm, man, give me 300 yards, maybe two ways. I'm on my power line. I can see this way, nine to that way. Now I'm covering 600 yards, put your time in. You're going to see a buck, especially maybe some timbers been thinned or mesquites real thick or, you know, some cover there, put your time in. Mm-hmm. You may go two days and all of a sudden in two minutes it happens. But you, during the peak of the rut, I'm not worried about a pattern. I want to be able to cover as much distance or be downwind of a bedding area. I like it. I like it, Grant. Well, man, I really appreciate you hopping on here today to talk to me about the rut and some other things. And so before we leave, Tell the listeners, you know, where can they find you on YouTube, social media? Where can they find everything that you do with Growing Deer TV? Yeah, just go to YouTube or anything. Just Growing Deer. Just type in Growing Deer and, and, and on Facebook or Instagram. Just go to Grant Woods. You're, you'll find us. It's easy. Okay. Well, and Grant, thanks for saying that. Yeah, absolutely, man. And man, I really appreciate you again just for hopping on the Hunt Stand podcast with me today and talking deer. Ah, thank you. Thank you for Hunt Stand. I use it all the time. It's on my phone. I'm using it all the time. So... Thanks for the team there making my hunting more enjoyable and a little bit better, right? All that data is helping me. Oh, yeah. And hopefully we're going to be having some other stuff coming out in the future, too, that uh, will make it even better. Great. All right, y'all, there you go. We just want to thank Dr. Grant Woods for hopping on the podcast with us today and talking deer, deer hunting, the rut. It's what we love to do. It's my most favorite time of the year. I'm going to go get up in a stand. And thank you again for tuning in to Hunt Stand Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one.
others search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.